I was at Lydia's last soccer game yesterday. It's very bittersweet. The season is over. Uh, but it was beautiful, right? Yesterday morning, around 11 o'clock, if you were outside, the sun was shining, birds were chirping, just you know, big billowy white clouds going by, and I'm out there in my t-shirt and my shorts and my flip-flops, just loving life, not a care in the world, paying no mind at all to the other mom who's diligently spraying sunscreen on her children and the other teams, you know, children on the team and so on, and I'm just thinking to myself, it's not even June yet. Ultraviolet radiation doesn't hit the earth until June 1st. I'm good, you know. Uh, but the tops of my feet, you know, look like I stepped in red paint. Um, I've got a good, you know, redneck-y kind of burn going here on my neck, all that fun stuff. Uh, it actually matters what's, um, what's real versus what's imagined. Uh, if I imagine there's no ultraviolet radiation coming until June the 1st. I can think that's true all I want, but it doesn't change reality. Uh, the, the song that the, we just sang together, uh, I think, has a great line in it. I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers only you provide because you know just what we need before we can say a word. Uh, we're looking at a passage this morning that uh, you might be tempted to just kind of jump over, think it's like an epilogue. Um, Paul is wrapping up Romans and he's saying, hey to this person and greet this person and hey, this person's a great guy, you should get to know him. I, and, you're, and it's almost like he's done, he's done with the meat of Romans, maybe we should just skip over the next page and start 1 Corinthians. But, but that would be a mistake because what we would miss is how Paul views um, the, the people in the church, his understanding of uh, what ministry is about, who does what, and in particular, how that applies to men and women in the church, gender. Gender. Gender is this, this topic, this discussion that our culture uh, continues to have, and, and they just don't know where to turn. Uh, for answers. A lot of people have rejected the church in the discussion of gender because um, they think the only thing the church has to offer uh, is on the fundamentalist side, you've got people, men in particular, who have been abusing spiritual authority, been abusing their manhood. Or they've rejected the church because they look at kind of the liberal church and they think, well, um, that's just the result of a bunch of guys abdicating any responsibility for leadership. And, you know, women have filled that vacuum. I remember being in Jamaica. Uh, I was a senior high youth minister in Orlando. We took a team of kids to go build um, dorms at a, at a deaf school, a school for deaf children. And we were there over Father's Day weekend. We go to the, the local church, and they're making a big deal out of Father's Day. Because in the whole church, there was like, I could count the, the, the men on one hand. Uh, because men had left. Men had left the church. Uh, and the women are like, Lord, send us men. Um, send us leaders. Send us uh, people who can, uh, can exercise that humble, servant-like leadership uh, in, the, in the home, in the church, etc. So you know, people have rejected what the church has to say about the gender discussion. And they're turning instead to just, you know, whatever the next uh, person blogs or says on HuffPost or BuzzFeed or whatever, and just people don't know what to think. But here in Romans 16, interestingly, there's a lot about gender. 
masculinity, femininity, uh, as it applies to the church. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to start in uh, verse 1, just go to verse 7. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at, uh, at Sencrie, and that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Apenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Let me pray. Father, please come and um, continue uh, to lead our worship. Um, Send your spirit to open our ears and our hearts, uh, open the eyes of our hearts, that we may know your will, uh, that we may know how you have designed us, male and female, how you have designed your church, how you have intended for us to bear your image to a world uh, that is very lost, uh, just as we were. And then you gave us grace, and you gave us Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to I begin by just talking about male leadership in the church, and then we're going to talk about uh, female giftedness in the church, and then I want to wrap up by talking about um, men and women uh, in the gospel, in the whole context of the gospel. So we're going to Uh, hit the pause button on Romans 16, and let me go to Genesis for a little bit as we talk about male leadership. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Uh, So just a quick takeaway from that singular verse that's familiar to probably a lot of you, but if you're new uh, to the church, if you're new to the Bible or whatever, this is the, um, the, the creation account where God makes everything that there is. God's the only eternally existing being that there is, and everything else had a start. Um, and so on the sixth day, he creates man in his own image. And what, what you need to take away from this, uh, in addition to God being the creator, is that in order to successfully create a human being, in God's image, he had to create two human beings. Male and female, he created them. And we'll talk more about why that's important. Uh, Flip over to chapter 2 in Genesis, and you get to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for or uh, or corresponding to him. Um, And there you you have an important piece of information as well, that in in order to properly bear God's image, uh, it's not sufficient that only one human being do that. It actually took more than one person in order to sufficiently, adequately bear God's image. Um, So what do we learn about uh, male spiritual leadership uh, in the Garden of Eden? What do we learn about uh, male leadership in Eden? A guy named Tom Schreiner um, did a, 
a contribution to a book about views of, of women's roles uh, at home and in the church. Uh, in his contribution uh, to that book, he lists five, at least, there's at least, you know, five ways that uh, God's appointment of Adam as the leader, a spiritual leader, uh, is evident in Genesis, um, you know, in Eden. So what he says is that you have to pay attention first to the order of creation, that God created Adam first and then Eve, and, and Paul comes back around to that point uh, as well in 1 Timothy. So there's just simply the order of, you know, the, Adam was first and then Eve. Then you get to the fact that God said that um, what he would do was create Eve to be a helper for for Adam, um, and that implies that Adam's going to lead and Eve's going to help. You get to the fact that when Eve comes um, to Adam, he names her. Uh, Previously, God had given him the leadership and the responsibility to name all the animals, and then, hey, Adam needs someone corresponding to him, just like there are corresponding male-female animals. And then Eve, God creates Eve, brings Eve to Adam, and Adam names her, um, you know, the one who's going to bring life. So that's significant. Um, that's a sign of authority and a sign of leadership. Uh, and then the minor key, when you flip to Genesis 3, uh, and uh, Satan comes, and when you pay attention to the order of who addresses who and, and how God responds Uh, to Satan's temptation, you see something significant there. Satan doesn't tempt Adam. He goes to Eve. Not because, you know, Eve is somehow maybe more vulnerable, but because uh, Satan is deliberately not, not just attacking Eve as a person, but he's attacking humanity. And he's going against what God has created. And so he is turning upside down the order or the, the, the symbol of authority, and he's going to Eve first. He's working backwards. And then when God comes to confront humanity about their rebellion, their betrayal, which is the essence of sin, it wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. That's nothing. Turning your back on God, betraying him, and finding satisfaction elsewhere, that's serious. And when God confronts the, the human race at that point, who does he go to? He didn't go to Eve. Who's the one who sinned first? He went to the leader, the one whom he appointed to be the head uh, of this particular family unit. And at that point, the church, you know, as it was, was two people. And Adam was the head of his home and the head of the church at that point. Um, so that's a broad brush stroke. We don't have time to go into the details. Uh, but what do you think? Some of you are going, you know, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. I'm all on board. Some of you are going, I'm still, that's not, that's just a very broad brush brush stroke. I need more information. And some of you, you've already decided we're, you know, five minutes in and and you're going to check out. You're done. You're done with this sermon. You're done with the traditional biblical thing about, you know, male headship and authority structures and so on because, you know, I don't know what your background is, it's entirely possible that uh, there are people in this room and you came from that that sort of abusive background where men were in power and they used their power to hurt people. They used their power to preserve their privilege instead of to serve the good. Uh, Or you've come from a circumstance where you don't trust the Bible, it's written by men, right? And so they're just trying to advance their agenda and so on. Listen, if, if, you've, if you're tempted to check out, let me just ask you a personal favor, right? I'm going to ask you a favor. 
don't check out yet. Just hang in there, listen to, to where this is headed, and then determine you know, where you want to go from here. Because um, I think when we see this in light of the gospel, you're going to see, oh, this is at least going to be a new perspective for you to check out. Something new to think about, not, the, not what you think you've heard before and rejected before. For the rest of you, I hope this is really going to be helpful and really undergird uh, what you already know uh, to be true and good. So uh, that's male leadership uh, in Eden, I guess you could say. Now, what about after Eden? What, what happened after Eden? God confronts um, the, the human race at that point through its leader, through Adam, uh, and there's a judgment uh, that is rendered. They're kicked out of Eden, but God doesn't give up on the human race. God continues to pursue humanity. He promises a redeemer. He promises one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and the promises of redemption start to flow out of uh, the people like the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, and those that followed from them. And they were the, the male leaders after Eden because they were the patriarchs, because a patriarch is a man. Um, so you have the patriarchs, and they're leading. Um, then after the patriarchs, the nation of Israel starts to come uh, into the picture. And you've got male leadership there, too, people like King David. Um, you've got the whole line of the priests uh, derived from Aaron and his sons, and it's all men who are serving in the priesthood. And then you have the prophets, um, people like Nathan, people like, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, major prophets and minor prophets. But you know what? Uh, we're going to be all cards on the table here. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, well, all the prophets were, were men, you know, next. Guess what? Some of the prophets were women. Some of the prophets were women. What's interesting about that is that, you know, God values and gives dignity to women. Uh, he doesn't withhold his word from them and and, and they can be used by God uh, to give instruction and to give counsel, to give uh, God's word uh, on occasion. It's, it's, not, it's certainly not as frequently as men are used as prophets, but here's what's important to keep in mind. And when it came to the official word, the eternal word, not, not so much speaking to circumstances, Nathan, you know, comes and approaches David about his affair with Bathsheba, um, when it comes to God's laws, his eternal precepts, those kinds of things, when it comes to teaching Israel, guess what? That task did not fall to the prophets. It was actually the job of the priests. And the priests were always men. You know, there really wasn't an exception to that. But it didn't mean that the women uh, did not have a role to play uh, in God's prophetic word on occasion. Then, you get to the New Testament, um, male leadership continues the, the pattern of, of official leadership going to the apostles who were all men. Uh, you get to the installation of elders and deacons. Uh, all the elders were men. Uh, you get to deacons, and there's a little bit of debate there. Are all the deacons men, uh, or are some of the deacons women? Phoebe, for instance, who we are introduced to in Romans 16. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but Regardless of the different women who uh, appear in the Old Testament and the New Testament who, who seem to have some kind of leadership role that they play from time to time, 
It's good to keep in mind that of the, as you look at even chapter 16 in Romans, of the 37 people that Paul mentions, 10 of them are women. So he's esteeming women and affirming women. But none of the letters, none of the epistles, none of the pastoral epistles that Paul writes are, are to women who are officially leading churches. He writes to Timothy, he writes to Titus, um, he writes to Philemon, and, and none, of these are, none of these are women, they're men, they're, they're, they have decision-making authority. None of the pastors of the churches are women, none of the elders are women. Uh, we're not sure about all of the deacons necessarily, but when it really comes down to it, when you want to look at male leadership after Eden, uh, what, what we have to pay attention to is God's plan to redeem the world through one particular man, Jesus. So when God sends the Messiah, he incarnates in the gender of a man. Uh, that wasn't an accident. Uh, it wasn't like, well, he could have been female. No, he couldn't have. Um, what, what we have to re realize is that gender mattered because God was going to save the world and redeem the world through um, a spiritual leader. Uh, Jesus wasn't female, nor was he sort of androgynous. It is significant that he's, that he's male, and it is significant, too, that the object of the, the redemption is the church, and the church is pictured as female. Um, that's not an accident either. The church is pictured as the one who would support and encourage and respond to the leadership of Jesus. That good, loving, servant leadership would be reciprocated by a church that is going to provide strong help, um, uh, ministry to come alongside and to partner with and to pr provide partnership with Jesus' work to build his church. That's where you and I come in to play. We're all considered female, the, the helper in the partnership of kingdom growth and building. Um, so when you think about male leadership after Eden, uh, give, give thought to those official offices, those official roles that were given. Um, now, Jesus, we should pay attention, did choose a lot of women who were a part of his inner circle even. Um, you know, they weren't apostles, but uh, it's, it's, it's really remarkable how often the women are mentioned. Um, the fact that Mary is the first one that Jesus appears to in his resurrected body. Um, the fact that the women are close at the cross, uh, and it appears that the guys have, have um, you know, are looking on at a distance. Over and over again, women are affirmed in the ministry of Jesus. And it's, and it's in vogue today uh, to say, hey, look, you know, Jesus would have, would have given apostolic office to some of the women, but... Um, he understood his culture. He understood how that would not have been received well. And so what Jesus was doing was sort of setting a, a theological trajectory that would be fulfilled later on in the church. And therefore, we should be granting spiritual leadership to men and women today. As if, and, I, and all right, so regardless of where you're at in, in this whole debate about gender and authority, I know that's heavy, Regardless of this whole thing, I want you to just ask yourself, and I'm going to, pause, I'm going to put this question to all of us. What, what this line of thinking wants us to believe is that Jesus, who was willing to touch the untouchable, 
Jesus, who was willing to go against every conventional norm and accepted practice there was, and spend time in the company of contagious lepers, of odious tax collectors, of prostitutes and sinners who you would deliberately avoid by going you know, around on the other side of the street uh, if you're a good person. Jesus could care less about the conventional norms of that culture when it came to all those categories, but we're supposed to, to, to believe that, that he was kind of timid when it came to the issue of gender. We're supposed to think that, well, he didn't want to upset that apple cart. He was just setting a trajectory that we would honor later. I just don't think that holds any water at all. I think that's asking us to exercise a little more faith than Jesus wants us to, act, to, to exercise. It's not consistent at all with the Jesus who is just completely shattering the, the expectations of the people around him, overturning the tables in the, in the temples, touching dead people, for crying out loud. Uh, that's the Jesus uh, who, if he had something to say, he would say it. So when we think about male leadership after Eden, notice that all of the offices, all the official um, positions in the church, whether Old Testament or New Testament, are occupied by men. Um, so let's talk about female giftedness in the church. Um, Back to Romans 16, we're, we're looking at these um, particular women uh, who Paul calls out. There's 37 people mentioned in, in all of Romans 16. Ten of them are women. Let me introduce you to a few of them. Uh, first is Phoebe. And uh, she is called Paul's, uh, well, Paul refers to her as our sister. That's a, that's a rare uh, title, a rare, rare way to refer to a woman. Uh, most of the time it's the brothers or, or whatever in, in that sense, but it's really rare that, that a woman is singled out and called our sister. And she's called a servant or literally a deaconess, uh, actually literally a deacon of the church. And, uh, and Paul also refers to her as a patron. Um, what I love is that this woman, Phoebe, most people believe she's mentioned first, she's given prominence because uh, most commentators believe she was actually the one who was the courier. She had the scroll of Romans in her hand, delivering it from Corinth to Rome and putting it in the hands of the church leaders in Rome. Think about that. Romans is arguably the most studied theological work in, in the Bible, in the New Testament for sure, and God put it in the hands of a woman to take all the way from Corinth uh, to Rome. I love the honor and the esteem that that, that, that shows. Um, Paul says that she's a servant uh, or a deacon of the church. And, uh, and that sort of sounds like there's an official capacity there. Um, there's, a, there's, there's two points of tension here. On the one hand, he's saying that she's our sister and that she's... Uh, a, a deacon of the church, and so that sounds official. But on the other hand, of the 20 times that Paul uses the word deacon, diakonos, in the New Testament, 18 out of 20 times he uses it in an informal sense. 
referring to himself, referring to his co-workers, even referring to civil governors, um, you know, magistrates and so on. They are servants, deacons. Refers to Jesus as a deacon. Um, twice, it, it is clear he's talking about an official office, but 18 times he's talking more informally, like somebody who really just has the heart of a servant. Oh, they just have the heart of a servant, right? We know how to pray that prayer. Um, so what's Paul saying? Is it an official office or is it something informal? Um, if it's an official office, here's what you need to be uh, ready uh, to conclude. Paul nowhere addresses um, a female uh, who has spiritual authority. Uh, so if he's addressing a female deacon, what, what that tells us about Paul's view of the diaconate is that they only are there to serve and they are not there to govern in any way, authoritatively, in the life of the church. Uh, personally, I'm not prepared to go there. Some, some uh, folks certainly are, and, uh, and that's okay. You're reading and interpreting, you know, and trying to make that, that case biblical. I respect that, but I'm, I'm not prepared to say that the diaconate office doesn't have spiritual authority, because I think it does. Um, she is a mentor. There's another way that, uh, a, pa- a patron, I'm sorry, uh, not a mentor, a patron of Paul, and many others as well, and I think that's significant about Phoebe. Um, Doug Moo says in his commentary that a patron was one who came to the aid of others, especially foreigners, by providing housing and financial aid, think mercy ministry, and by representing their interests before local authorities, and you can think justice ministry. So what's beautiful is that as a patron of Paul and of others, Phoebe is serving like a deacon. Even if she doesn't have the official office of a deacon, she can still do the ministry of a deacon. Even if you don't have the official office of an elder, you can still do the ministry of shepherding. And that's basically what happens in the church anyway. God's putting gifting and, and, and calling on somebody uh, who is serving as a, doing deacony things or eldery things, and you know, the church recognizes that, and they're ordained. Uh, in our case, if they're male. So that's Phoebe. Um, let's get to Prissa or Priscilla, and uh, she and her husband Aquila show up numerous times in the New Testament. Paul mentions them again here in uh, verses 3 through 5. They host a house church. Paul calls them his fellow workers. Uh, they met in Corinth. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were originally from Rome, and they got kicked out of Rome in 39 AD. Uh, Claudius, the emperor, just decided... I don't like Jewish people anymore. And he made an edict, and he kicked out all the Jewish people from Rome, and they went to Corinth. Paul went to Corinth. They met in Corinth, and they were all tent makers together, working together, and they were ministering together. Um, And they traveled to Ephesus together. In their ministry together, they came across, um, Priscilla and Aquila came across a guy named Apollos, who was a really, really gifted preacher, uh, could, could hold an audience, to be sure, Um, knew the scriptures, but only knew about the baptism of John, John the Baptist. And after hearing him, Priscilla and Aquila, they go, oh, this guy is on fire for the Lord, but he doesn't have the whole picture yet. And so we're told in Acts 18 that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Both of them. Husband and wife, 
pulled this man aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. Priscilla knew her stuff. She knew the gospel, she knew theology, she could adequately explain the way of God you know, to a guy like Apollos. Paul refers to Prissa and Aquila as his fellow workers. He doesn't just refer to Aquila, my fellow worker, and his wife Prissa. You know, we'll, we'll mention her too. He doesn't do that. She is considered his fellow worker as well. Um, great esteem uh, extended toward her, not just her husband. Uh, we run across Mary in verse 6. Uh, we're told she works hard for you, which is, you know, working hard matters. The gift of helps matters. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be up front. You don't have to be, you know, um, in the lights. You can be behind the scenes, and it matters. Uh, Junia is mentioned as well in verse 7. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. Uh, maybe they're related to Paul. My fellow prisoners, uh, perhaps they spent time in the same jail. I don't know if that's, you know, a possibility, or maybe they were jailed elsewhere, but, you know, shared that experience. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Um, this is a complex, uh, syntactically it's complex, and I don't have time to go into it, but some people look at this verse, and they don't just say, they don't just translate it that they are well known to the apostles, like the apostles know about Junia and Adronicus, but they are well known among the apostles, meaning that they are considered apostles themselves. And, uh, and this is a place where folks want to go to say, see, look, Junia, she is an apostle. And therefore, you know, women belong in ordained uh, leadership as well as men. Uh, the trick with that is it's maybe stating too much. Um, when you talk about an apostle, it's sort of like the word deacon. It has a formal sense and an informal sense. And all over the place, people are called apostles who aren't one of the twelve. They're not official apostles. They're sent ones. They're emissaries. They're messengers. They're commissioned ones. They're missionaries is a great way to think about an apostle, somebody who's sent out to take the, the message of the gospel. They're a missionary. And the problem with assuming that, you know, if it's to be translated among the apostles, the problem with assuming that, oh, see, there she is, she's official, she's ordained, she's, you know, a, a spiritual leader just like her husband. Uh, the problem is that when you get to places like 1 Corinthians 15, you see the, um, the 12, the official apostles mentioned, and then he appeared, Jesus appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. Um, and so there you go, Paul is uh, explaining the fact that there's the 12, and then there's lots of other people who are considered apostles as well. Um, you know, there's, a, there's several other women who are mentioned in verses 12 and following, uh, and we'll get to them uh, in the weeks to come. Let me talk, we talked about women in ministry in Rome. Let's talk about women in ministry at Tabernacle. What can women do at Tabernacle? We've seen all the different things that women are doing in Rome. What can women do at Tabernacle? Where's this line between, you know, men as leaders and women as helpers? How is that extended at Tabernacle? Can men and women at Tabernacle do lots of stuff. They lead worship together. Um, even young men and young women lead worship together. Um, men and women at Tabernacle, they'll, they'll serve our children together. They'll teach our children together, um, whether that's in classes or nursery or VBS or whatever. Uh, men and women at Tabernacle help lead uh, home groups. Uh, they'll lead Bible studies. 
men and women at Tabernacle are ministering to the community uh, through parachurch organizations, reaching out to our neighbors, reaching out to the nations. Men and women at Tabernacle and missions teams. Men and women at Tabernacle are doing all kinds of ministry together. With one exception. One exception. In 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam is formed first, then Eve. Um, there's that whole point about the order of creation. Man, and that's the rub right there. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And that's where everybody goes, all right, see, you can't even listen to the Bible anymore. It's so outdated. Who believes that stuff anymore? Well, let me, let me, let me make two points here, and then I'm going to tell you why I think it's good for us to believe this, as crazy as it might sound. So at Tabernacle, what we believe um, is Paul is saying teaching and exercising authority over a man, there's a lot of overlap there, um, Because five verses earlier in his letter to Timothy, he said, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So um, basically what we're understanding Paul to say is that men have the responsibility to exercise spiritual authority when it comes to teaching and preaching in particular. That that spiritual authority um, is most concentrated, most expressed, um, uh, most powerful when it comes to actually what I'm doing right now, preaching. Because what we believe is happening right here is not that I'm just kind of giving you uh, some, some clever thoughts, um, talking too long, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, that actually God through his Holy Spirit is communicating to his people. So we don't take this lightly. Um, it doesn't, I, I, I'm, you can, I'm so open to, <laughs> Uh, to charges of hypocrisy and so on. I get it. Like, this is, I'm, I'm a fallible instrument. But that doesn't mean that we don't believe that God, through his spirit, can do far above and beyond what any human being might, uh, might try to accomplish in their own strength. So we do believe God is giving grace to his people through preaching, that he is giving us his word, he is teaching us. And so when it comes to preaching, this is where we draw the line. There are only going to be men in this pulpit, not because we don't like women, because we think that God established men to be spiritual leaders and to, to do that as, uh, with hearts of the servant and for women to be helpers, strong helpers. And that men alone are going to be called to exercise the authority to lead the church uh, through the ordained office of an elder and a deacon at Tabernacle. So does this mean that um, women should never teach? Uh, no, we don't think that. Um, we think women uh, are not going to be preaching, but... Depending on the context, there's going to be some wisdom to, to factor in, you know, what's going to be most helpful. Yeah, you'll see women teaching at Tabernacle. Um, not all the time, but sometimes. And we're trying to work out with the best dependence on the Holy Spirit, what's going to best communicate strong um, servant leadership from men and faithful, supportive, uh, strong helping from women. So when it comes to male and female and the church, this all has to be guided and governed by the gospel. Otherwise, we're just kind of making this stuff up and inventing it. Um, when, back to Genesis, when the serpent uh, came and said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Um, ever since then, ever since Eden, 
our, our ancient enemy has been putting these questions into our minds. Is God really saying? Is this really what God wants? Is this really what he said? Did God really say that gender matters? That there are distinctions between men and women? Did God really say that? Did God really say that while men and women have equal worth, they should not have equal roles? One's going to lead, one's going to help. Does God really say that men are called to have primary spiritual leadership? Did God really say that women are supposed to support men in, in, in pursuing primary spiritual leadership? Did God really say that? In Galatians 3, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. We were all one in Christ. And, uh, and when Paul says there is no male or female, people want to go, see, I knew, I knew we were supposed to embrace a more progressive view of gender. That the gospel somehow erases that distinction, right? No. It's not, er- it's not erasing a distinction between male and female. What it's erasing is any sense of privilege based on your gender, your class or your race. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male or female. At the cross, everyone's equal. You don't get privilege. You don't get to go past the red velvet rope because you're rich or because you're free or because you're male. And you don't have to slink back. You don't have to feel like you're not worthy. Or you don't have to feel like, you know, God can never pay attention to me because I'm just a, you know, you fill in the blank. And of course, you and I know that in traditional culture back then, women were considered nothing. Jesus, Paul, the New Testament, the gospel esteems and lifts up women. So what what Paul is saying is that if there's no male or female, it means that there's nothing that we bring to the cross that, that matters, whether for us or against us. Instead, what matters is what Jesus brings to the cross. What Jesus brought to the cross was his perfect humanity. He was the true Adam, the true second Adam who who succeeded in everything where, where Adam and Eve failed. And he obeyed perfectly and instead of receiving his reward, he took our place. And he laid down his life as a substitute for our sin. And he rose again as a, as a representative of our righteousness that we can have by faith in him because of what he brings, not because of what we bring. What we bring is sin, and Jesus takes that away. And what he gives us is his goodness, his righteousness, his value, his worth, his dignity. And in making us new creations, everyone who has faith in him, he's recreating humanity. He's making us into a new human race, the way that we were intended to be, imaging God. What does that mean? It means that we can't do it alone. That we need men and women to fully image God. We need community to image God because God is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because Jesus is the model for men to exercise servant leadership in a way that lays down our lives, if you're a husband, for your wife, if you're a man, for humanity in general, being willing to lay down our life as Jesus did. And, it, and Jesus is restoring the image of God in women, showing them what it means to have headship over him. Paul said that um, in, in um, 1 Corinthians, 
I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what is Jesus doing? Over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus says things like, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm serving his mission, his plan. He's leading, and I'm following, and I'm carrying out, helping him to to establish his kingdom. Jesus says again in John 8, he who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is the strong helper for his Father. And in our our memory verses, John 15, I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know the will of his master. But I've called you friends, and I'm revealing to you everything that I've heard from my Father. Everything that I've heard from my Father, I'm making known to you. And so that's Jesus demonstrating not just what it means to be a, a leader, a servant leader laying down his life, but what it means to be a strong helper content, not to have to grab the wheel, content to honor qualified leadership from his father. The Lord said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'm going to make a a helper that's going to be corresponding to him, someone who's going to bless him, somebody who's going to help make the image of God more evident, more um, on display for a world that desperately needs to know what does it mean to be male, what does it mean to be female, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to function as men and women in the church? If there's any place the world should be able to go to see what does it look like for men and women to exist in harmony, not the fundamentalist view where you know, men are dominating and abusing authority, not the liberal view where people have just given up and abdicated, and certainly not the secular view where nobody knows where to turn, but instead, why can't the church put on display male and female relationships, community in general that shows the world what does it look like to be a restored humanity? So I don't know where you're following in this discussion. I hope you've had some, some things to think about at the end of the day what I don't want you to do is treat this as an interesting topic. Because these were all real people. This isn't just theory. It's not just a lecture. This is, these were all real people that Paul knew, and they all were really serving the church, really even risking their necks for the mission of the gospel. Whether you're male or female at Tabernacle, are you working hard? for the Lord? Are you a servant? Are you a, are you a patron? Um, are you uh, like a mother uh, to anyone here? Are you advancing the kingdom? If Let me put it this way. If Paul from another city were riding to Waynesboro, to Tabernacle, would your name be on here? Would Paul know about your ministry at Tabernacle? Would Paul, would the, the saints rejoice that so-and-so has this ministry and they're doing it to the glory of God and with all you know, of their heart? If not, well, you're, you're missing the point. The point is not, you know, hey, how can we figure out, you know, and have these discussions about what's male, what's female. The point is, do you love the Lord? Do you love what he loves? Jesus loves his church. And he laid down his life for her, for us. And we're his disciples And we're called to do the same. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, give us grace? Uh, In a lot of ways, this can be a a heavy discussion uh, based on what we've experienced, uh, places where people have come from. 
Thank you for the gospel where no matter where we've come from and no matter what our privilege might be or might not be, you love us. You offer us the same salvation. You offer us the same inheritance, the same hope, and the same restored humanity to embody. So Lord, help us to treat our gender as men and women who have been made in your image and who want to follow you, want to be biblical in our understanding of who you've made us to be. And help us to treat our salvation in a way that honors you and honors your kingdom and shows the world what redeemed humanity um, should look like and act like and interact like. Lord, would you use the gifts and the calling and the, the, the free time, the, the, the situations in life, everything here among those that call Tabernacle home, Lord, would you use us to strengthen your church and advance your mission? And would you get glory through that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.